Isn't it funny how we all start off with a plan or conception of what our life and career will look like, but oftentimes we end up in a completely different place than we ever could have dreamed? Well, this is a podcast where we sit down with celebrities, athletes, and entrepreneurs to hear how they handled life's unexpected events. I'm your host, Andrew East. I'm an engineer turned professional athlete turned entrepreneur, and I'm super excited to bring you these stories to help inspire you to reach your dreams, no matter what they look like. What's up, guys? Welcome back. This week's redirect is a big one for me personally, and it actually falls perfectly in line with what we discussed in the interview today. Um, I recently joined a men's group, and we've been discussing identity and what it means to fully realize who God made you to be, what gifts you have, what gifts you don't have. And I feel like now, at this point in my life, I am closer to finding out who I was made to be than I've ever been before, and I'm so excited. And it's a kind of an interesting coincidence of events with um, this interview that's being released, my class being released, and uh, several other things. And it's been cool that I've really kind of been taken outside my comfort zone and have experienced conflict that has forced me to um, realize who I am. And it's actually extremely refreshing after having been through that conflict because I feel empowered now to uh, do the things that I was called to do. And actually another redirect is about this episode being published on a Tuesday instead of a Monday. And there's a reason for that. And it's because today is Giving Tuesday. And so today we're actually sitting down with my brother, Guy East, who started his own charitable organization. And it's one that Sean and I fully support and love and think it's an awesome cause. And um, he's going to share about it today. But essentially what he does is help people find their identity. And so often in today's culture, whether it's through sports or your job or school, uh, we find ourselves being, our identity being attached to what we're doing and how we're performing and not who God made us to be. And Guy helps people find out what their identity is by allowing them to focus not on themselves but other people. Uh, They build houses for impoverished families all over the world. And they also bring in teachers and mentors and psychologists to help share what it means to fully step into your identity. Um, and so if you guys feel called, down below is a link that uh, you can click on and donate however much you are willing to, to give. But I would highly recommend you guys at least check into this organization. And if you don't give to this charity, give to another one because um, Giving Tuesday is important, and it's these charitable organizations that help the world go around. So today's interview is with my brother Guy, who was a professional cyclist, uh, raced with the best of the best, Lance Armstrong uh, being one of them, and that's how actually he met Sean and then introduced me to Sean. But then he transitioned out of that, and it's an awesome story, into starting his own charitable organization. So I'm going to let him share his own story, but I'm excited to bring this one to you guys, and I hope you enjoy it. Guy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know you have a busy schedule and times are crazy down in Tijuana, but uh, I'm really excited. I've been super excited for this episode, and I think the timing is perfect, really, with uh, Giving Tuesday being today. So um, I just wanted to start off and say how much I have loved seeing you grow over the past like eight years, and I'm excited to, to hear you talk about how you've pivoted from being that professional cyclist into what you're doing now. And I think that you have like really some phenomenal takeaways and a great perspective. That's going to be really good for the audience to hear. But I I just wanted to start off and say that, um, you know, a big thing, a lot of feedback that I get is about my hair. And, um, I think, I think that there's a little background story that maybe you could tap into about you you starting this trend and then, 
and then jumping ship and how that whole thing works because you got the same flow going on. <laughs> yeah, well, I might have started the trend and then I cut it off when, when yours got long. So, you know, I like to. Anyway. You have, you have beautiful hair and this has happened multiple times. So it's happened twice. It's happened twice. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I've, I've enjoyed having long hair and then by the time you catch on to the trend, you, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm tired of it. So yeah. it's, not my, it's not my problem, but I, I've had my hair much longer than you've ever had. Yours, so yeah. yeah, I feel like this is the last time I can do it before going bald, but not a lot of people are liking the mullet feel that I got going on now. So I'm about to fix that. Um, anyway, on a more important note, I, I want to hear your take on it. And it's been a while since we've talked about this, but I want to hear your take on how you got into cycling, um, what made you love it so much. Um, and we'll just start there and talk about your cycling career. Yeah, well, I got into cycling because kids made fun of me in school. And I I went to a small Christian school and I transferred there when I was in sixth grade and, and uh, really uh, thought I was going to like it. And then kids started making fun of me and calling me names. And, and, uh, I was very athletic and I loved playing sports, but when they started calling me names, I didn't want to play any sports at school. And so I, um, did anything I could to run away from those guys and did anything I could to, to help my parents understand that I hated it. And so when my, when my dad bought me a bike and, you know, I don't know, I was probably 10 years old. I just started riding like crazy and I just loved riding because I was away from name calling and bullying and, and I could just be free. And, um, and anger drove me a lot. You know, I was just so angry at these kids and they were so mean to me. And I just rode, you know, tw- as a sixth grader, I think I averaged 25 miles a day all, all, all year, you know, I would, would ride all through the winter in Indiana. And, um, and uh, I just kept getting better at it and better at it and saw pictures of the U.S. national team members and saw pictures of Lance Armstrong and saw him win the Tour de France in 1999. And, and I set my heart on that because I was like, you know, they, these guys became my idols. And so I dedicated my life to that. And then, and you know, somewhere along the line, the U.S. national team invited me to compete and, and, and before they invited me to compete, you and JD were, um, our, our other brother, uh, was very in, got very into cycling and actually became more successful than I did for a little while, but it, it didn't really work out for you guys, but, um, it could have, um, but I, you know, I just started competing on the U S national team, started getting invited to compete in Europe and started going up the, the ladder and, um, was chasing my dream. So, Wait, so right away you got into cycling because of, of you being bullied. What, like, what were they, they bullying you for? What, what, what was the cause of the bullying? Well, you know, I mean, it's in sixth grade. So I think kids are just more inclined to be a little mean to each other as, as they're growing up and going through puberty and stuff. And so they were calling me gay and girl and, oh, you know, blah, this and blah, that. And it just didn't really feel inviting, especially at a Christian school where I thought, kids were going to be uh, nicer and you know more, uh, open, more with open arms and so it was really surprising but yeah just because because my name guy or because my last name east and it was girl west and girl south and girl <laughs> east and you know it's obviously like looking back it's not that big of a deal but I think that words uh, words are are very powerful and 
can do a lot of harm. Actually, just speaking of that, I just saw this incredible video the other day of, um, of this guy and he took two jars of rice, two jars of rice. He put them in there and he said, love on one. He wrote love on one and hate on the other. And every day he would wake up and he would, he would speak to the one, I love you, to the jar of rice that said, I love you on it. And the other one, I hate you. And over 30 days, this is no joke, over 30 days, the one that said, I hate you, and the one he spoke hate to became moldy and black. No. And the one that he said, I love you to was perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. Same rice. So, and like, that is just an example of the power of words, I feel like. And I'm... I realize that now. And I, I mean, I think it was, you know, definitely a story in my life when you have people telling you that, you know, even they're not necessarily telling you that they hate you or that you're not any good. That's what's being portrayed and uh, communicated. So it's, obviously it's not a great environment to be in. You right. want to be, and I, and, and, and I didn't get that when I became a cyclist either, but when that's another discussion, you know, it was like, when I became a professional cyclist, you know, you have the coaches and you have people that you look up to um, that are not your peers, that they're your, your coaches and your leaders. And they're telling you, Hey, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. You, you need to go faster. You're not doing any good. You need to step it up. You need to get into the game. And um, that also takes a toll on you. So anyway, back to the, you know, starting off. I mean, that's, that's how it was. So. Well, so I wonder if it ever, for you, did, your, did, did the angst, even though that was what sparked your, your beginnings in cycling, did it ever translate into passion? Like did, you spent so much time, you were on the bike five hours a day for 28 days out of the month probably. Did, did that ever turn into a passion? I know that you, growing up, you loved football. You're a fanatic for the Colts and uh, Jim Harbaugh and, and all those. Did you ever feel that same excitement about cycling or? Totally. Totally. I loved cycling. I loved cycling so much. And, um, you know, I really wanted to be a great champion and it was just something that I just fell in love with. And I still, after 20 years, I'm still in love with it. You know, it's made a huge mark on my life and, um, I can't imagine not riding my bicycle, you know, um, on a regular basis, but yeah, Anger drove me to to success in a way, uh, but that doesn't mean that I didn't love it at the same time, you know. Can you just talk about the mentality that a cyclist needs to have? Because, I mean, it's so much different than the football environment that I grew up in where it's you're around, like you can't not be around people. Cycling, it's a very individual sport. Um, and I'm just curious, like, is there a stereotypical mindset or a stereotypical are they introverts mostly? Um, can you talk on that? Um, I mean, I think generally a lot of us like to be alone. I think, you know, one of the, it's, it's fun thing in a way you like to be alone. Like I used to love to ride by myself for five or six hours, just be out there because it was a place where I could think. And it still is a place where I can think. And I just, I just love that, you know, and, and, and when you're training, you don't necessarily have the, um, camaraderie you know that you would in a in a sport like football or basketball when you're racing you definitely do because you race in teams but you, you're not required to train as a team um but as i've gotten older and got out of racing and even at the tail end of my professional career i realized the uh, opportunities to use cycling as a social tool 
and I was able to meet so many people that I would have never otherwise met. Um, you know, you ride in a group with a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, a janitor at an elementary school, a professional cyclist, and an Ironman professional athlete, and they're all in the same group, and, and you can just meet them all, and, and, and you're all doing something you love. Um, I think that was something I really enjoyed. Um, but the mentality of a cyclist is, I mean, you just go out there and suffer, you know, just like pretty much any athlete. And you just, you, you're, you're, I think a lot of, of cyclists are, I, I shouldn't say a lot, but I know some that, that have the anger and rage from something, some relationship or whatever that just spurs them on. And they just go out there and they just ride with anger when they're training and they, um, I mean, I think a, mo a lot of us love being by ourselves, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't love being by myself. Like I could not imagine going on a five hour bike ride by myself right now. Like it sounds like torture, but back then it was a different story. So, yeah. It, I mean, cycling is, is somewhat similar to snowboarding and we interviewed, uh, I interviewed Louis Vito, who is like an Olympic caliber snowboarder. Um, and it's a same kind of culture. I feel like where it's, it's not one of the mainstream sports and there's this, rebellious countercultural vibe to it um they kind of all have their same uh clothing style you know with the messenger bags and the i remember you wearing like cut off capris and it's kind of that type of feel so anyway it's, it's just interesting um i feel like they're very very independent strong-willed i mean just like to your point football you suffer but you're in the cycling, you're suffering alone and it's for like a duration of, of five hours, which is absolutely brutal. Um, yeah, but, but, but think about it though, because I think a sport like snowboarding or cycling or some of these independent individualistic sports will attract kind of a misfit type of person, mm -hmm. you know, and they find their identity in being different from people. Whereas somebody as a football player is very popular, probably going through school, you know, um, more of a mainstream type of person. Yeah. And it's a completely different mentality, you know? I mean, because the snowboarder or the cyclist or the skateboarder or whatever is, you know, just trying to almost some of them maybe fight that, you know, type of uh, mainstream and popular mentality. But like, I, I remember being in school and people, you know, I would wear U.S. national team clothing to school because i was so proud of it you know and people were like why are you wearing that that you shouldn't be wearing that you should be wearing you know supporting the school and stuff and i'm like i'm supporting my country you know I, I, and i'm proud that i'm in the u.s on the u.s national team and you know so um anyway so transitioning into that you you've made it on the u.s national team you were on the the live strong u21 team you rode on two or three professional teams is that right kelly business uh, Kelly Benefits and uh, Trek Livestrong, yeah, those those two teams. And you made it to the peak of this experience as a cyclist. What what are the accomplishments that you've had in your career that you're most proud of? I'm curious. Well, I would say I made it to the peak of my experience as a cyclist for the the age that I was competing. You know, if I would have kept going, I I more than likely would have done, you know, much better. And my peers and my team, my teammates from the 2009 and mid 2000s are, you know, doing very well and, and successful. I think my, the peak for me was competing in Europe in the six days 
And um, these, these are events where it was actually the most popular sport in the United States in the early 1900s and late 1800s. And um, back then they, would use, they used to ride for six days straight, 24 hours a day. And uh, the record is 2,160 miles. And so that's longer than the Tour de France. And um, they did that in six days. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 during the, I think the, the, the highest paid guys are getting about $200,000 a week. And um, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was the, I think he was the governor of New York State, he made it a law that you can't compete for more than 12 hours a day because the riders were having to do all kinds of drugs and they'd fall off their bikes and all this stuff. So, so the rules changed and the depression hit and the world wars hit and uh, the sport totally transitioned um, and changed and it, it went over to Europe and uh, died out in the United States. And so I started to do these races and was one of very, very few Americans to get invited to do these six day races in Europe, professional six days. And probably over the past, uh, I'd say maybe 60 years, there's been 25 to 30 Americans that have done six days. And so it's a very small number and it's, you know, unfortunately they don't do a very good job of marketing or promoting the events in the United States. So you'd never hear about them, but um, in Europe, you know, you'll go there and there's 15,000 people in the stands and that's every night from 7 PM until 2 AM we're racing. Now we don't race for 24 hours a day, but um, that, that was something so special to me because I, I, I just loved it because they were, I thought they were doing sport right. Like they embraced the element of entertainment. You know, it wasn't like a cutthroat, you know, super uber competitive sporting environment where the results were the only thing that mattered. It was like, hey, we can go out there. We can enjoy ourselves. And as an athlete, as a professional athlete, your role in society is an entertainer, you know. Um, And through that role as an entertainer, you can inspire, you know, you can do so much. But um that was really embraced and I felt, I felt like it was my home and I felt like as an American and was a few Americans, I was quite proud to do that, even though it was, you know, most people never heard of them, but for me, it was, it was quite an accomplishment and mm-hmm. it was so fun. Man, fortunately I had the experience of coming over to Germany and Copenhagen uh, and Denmark to watch you and to kind of set the context for those listeners who might not know uh, what a six day is or, or what that looks like. It's, it's all on this track called a velodrome where it's a, what, it's a quarter mile track. Yeah. It's about 10 laps to a mile. Yeah. And then with the, with a very steep embankment of what, like 30% incline or. Um, 45 to 60 degree. (laughs) So so that thing is like, you feel if if you're standing up on it, you're uncomfortable because it's so steep. Well, you can't, you'd fall, you can touch the, in, in the apex of the corner, you can stand on the flat part of the ground and you can touch the, the banking just standing up where you're riding on some of the tracks. I mean, it's insane. That's crazy. You, 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 the, the minimum speed that you can go on a lot of the tracks is between 15 and 20 miles an hour. Minimum speed. Minimum. And minimum they get up speed. to over 40 miles an hour. Over, yeah. Over 40, sometimes faster, but you, ha- you have no brakes. You have one gear. Wow. And you just and and they're they're relays. So it's every every team. There's about 15 teams has two riders, and every 30 seconds you sling the other one in, and you'll compete in 15 races a night, 
approximately and, and ride anywhere from 60 to 100 miles and you're flying you know and, and you just I, oh my up God. and down up and down up and down you finish one race you go you get changed and you get massaged you. you get massaged and stuff like that and, and then lo and behold they call you up hey you gotta go get on the track right now and and that's how it is for six days and uh, you you know you're up at night and you sleep during the day so it's so pretty, I'll, it's pretty fun. I'll include in the description just so you guys can see it because it's it's crazy like there's nothing else like in this sport uh the link to the madison race where he's talking about these riders literally slingshot each other into the race and it's it's wor- definitely worth checking out i'll include in the description but guy mentioned uh that that he wasn't the only cyclist in the family my brother jd and i also did it uh, more out of being forced to by our dad than really voluntarily. But uh, my dad did triathlons. He he did like Ironman length triathlons. And because of that, he got us into cycling, which is one of the three uh, skills in triathlons. And so he used to drive us around the country as, I mean, guy was like 12 and I was like nine um, and enter us into the national cycling competitions for that age. And so I remember our brother JD finished top, three or top five in his first race was zero training. And I, I got top 13 or something like that. Uh, but something that always amazed me about you compared to JD and I is like your build. I I'm 6'2", 235 pounds. Now JD's 5'10", 235 pounds. Guy is 5'10", <laughs> a buck 50, yeah. something like that. Well, what? it used to be. Yeah. Five, um, yeah. And he had, just as much power as his two brothers that were bigger than him. And so he, you see guy in a track and he's so light, but so efficient. Um, he can hold this sprint pace for just miles on end. Whereas Jaden and I, we were always like two laps and burn out. You know, we were kind of the short distance sprinters, but um, anyway, that's, that's cool to hear that you, that six days were the peak. I, I always, uh, loved watching those races online and you, you got to travel the world. I mean, where are the, some of the places you've gotten to race your bike? Well, I think I've visited almost 50 countries and, you know, Italy, I lived in Belgium for on and off for four years. I lived in Italy for a little while. Um, Argentina was amazing. Japan, um, you know, as it's a, it was an incredible education, you know, all around the world and won races on, I think, you know, five continents maybe. Wow. So it was, I mean, it was pretty fun. You know, wow. it was a cool, cool deal. So you and I have kind of had similar experiences with professional sports in our, in our relative uh, athletics that we participated in where we made it to an elite level, but it was always, um, we were always still disappointed. I think for one reason or another, whether it was deserved or not. And I, I'll never forget. I'm not sure I've told you this, but I remember seeing a letter in our house where it was from the United States Olympic committee and you were supposed to compete in the 2012 Olympics, I believe. And they said that they were no longer going to include your event in, in the Olympics or in their portfolio. And I remember reading that and then putting it together they're like oh my gosh this is your dream and you're you're out in Colorado Springs training at the United States Olympic Training Center and seeing this letter was like heartbreaking for me and I I can only imagine what it was like for you I I would love for you to talk about your experience transitioning out of cycling and what sparked your transition away from cycling if you'd feel comfortable sharing that yeah so um in 2009 
when I was racing on Lance Armstrong's development team, we were in Mexico city and, and it was actually the beginning of the season. And it was that, I think it was the same week where they had um, declared that they were not going to have my event in the Olympics anymore, which was incredibly disappointing, obviously. And uh, one of the things that I was hoping for, and had the best shot about for, and, and then we're in Mexico city, we're staying in a five-star hotel and it was the end of a 10 day cycling race and we're just totally exhausted. And I, I walk out of the hotel and literally on the front step of the hotel, there's, there's people living in, in shacks and sleeping on the street and kids, you know, playing around in sewage water and stuff and just poverty, you know, right, right in front of this amazing five-star hotel. And we, you know, we were whining and dining like Kings and these, these kids are out in front of the street. And I said, you know, what's the point of this? You know, what, what, what am I dedicating my life to? Because I, I had done well, I had succeeded and got to the point where I was a professional, but these trophies and accomplishments were just sitting on my shelf and they were collecting dust. You know, it was like, I, I, it was never satisfying. And in, in my life, and for me personally, it was never satisfying in the eyes of the public. It was never satisfying. I could never do enough to satisfy people. And in cycling, you're told that you're only as good as your last performance. I think in sport in general, you're only as good as your last race or your last game. And you begin to internalize that and to feel like you as an individual, you as a human being is only as good as your last performance. Um, so I, I was up against the wall or, you know, really thinking about what, what am I doing? What am I dedicating my life to? And I, I, I figured I didn't want to do this anymore. And so I, I kept racing. My identity was totally in the cycling and, and I didn't have anything else in my life because from a sixth grader, so now I was 21, uh, for 10 or 12 years, my life was dedicated to that. And I had built my entire life around that. the idea that I was going to be an Olympic champion or a tour France champion. And there was no other option for me. There was never an option because that was just what I was going to do. And then with this experience, it, this awakening experience, you know, I, I was afraid, you know, because maybe what I had been working for all along wasn't what I really wanted. And so I, uh, after a lot of tough uh, decisions and, and thought and, and, and just difficult time, I decided to quit. And I, I had people that were really questioning what I was doing. You know, how could you be giving up so much talent? You know, you, you're going to be great if you just keep going. And, you know, how many people would love to be in your shoes and you're just throwing it out the window and whatever it was. Uh, but there was a lot of resistance. And in the peloton of cycling, in with my peer group of other professional cyclists and also outside of it. Um, but I think a lot of the, the resistance within my peer group came from within their selves of, of, you know, just being fearful of, um, or just, just seeing somebody make a decision that they might have wanted to make because a lot of us would compete out of fear. Mm -hmm. And when you see somebody make a decision, um, that's, that's not a popular decision. Um, it's, it's just oftentimes met with resistance. And so, but I, I really do think there's a lot of people, and I know for me personally, I competed um, for uh, longer than I should have, longer than I needed to, but I was fearful of what was going to happen next. 
you know, what was I going to do? Because I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have any other interest in my life. It was cycling or bust. And so um, I just kind of had to stay in it, basically, is what I thought. And so anyway, but but after overcoming all that, I, I, I got out of it. And, um, you know, I remember crying on a, you know, floor in Uruguay and talking to mom and saying, I'm going to quit and I can't do this anymore and stuff. Mm. Not a pretty picture you know it's not like it was just easy um but then so not knowing what i was going to do after that and thinking well i can't really do anything because if i wanted to do be a missionary if i wanted to make a difference in the world even everybody was requiring a college degree you know it was like i can't do anything without a college degree so i was like i'm going to ride my bike around the world and i'm just going to help with different mission organizations or nonprofits that are making a difference in the world and so i I kind of set out to do that, which was, you know, obviously very ambitious plan. And uh, I saw, I'll, well, on my 21st birthday, I flew to Puerto Rico to to do it on foot, to do part of Latin America on foot to see if I could actually do the rest of the world on a bicycle. And, you know, at that point, I actually had sold everything that I owned. I got all my, rid of all my bicycles, all my wheels, and I've got pictures of just getting rid of everything. Quite literally. Crazy. You sold everything that you owned. That's not an understatement. You had a drug drug. You had some nasty long hair and a backpack with maybe, I mean, guys notorious for never showering, not really hygiene and not really having like, you know, the the biggest portfolio of, of clothes to change into, but you sold everything. I did. I sold everything. And, um, you know, I, because I had so many bikes, I, I, I was okay after that, you know, and I had, you know, I had some stability and I got rid of everything and and I started living in homeless shelters actually before I went to Puerto Rico I started living in homeless shelters and eating in soup kitchens in Bloomington Indiana because I I said I want to know what it's like to be in the shoes of the poorest of the poor to be poor and marginalized and so I did that and um, you know obviously I didn't have to do that but I, I wanted to and then Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic and and then I ended up in Argentina, uh, where I was for a while and did a, a missionary training school with an organization called Youth with a Mission. And then I came to Mexico. And um, wh- while I was transitioning out, you know, I was, I was, had always been told that, you know, I was too fat and you're not skinny enough and all this stuff. And I became bulimic, you know, because... Because if, if, if that's the environment you grew up in and you really think that, you know, you're not, you're not skinny enough, you're not good enough, then it really gets to you. And so I became bulimic and it probably was worse when I retired because I wasn't or quote unquote retired because I um, wasn't writing as much, but I still wanted to maintain the image because my peer group, the, the most important thing was weight, you know, like when a cyclist sees each other, even now, you know, it's like, no matter if they're professional or they're 60 years old, one of the first things you say is, Oh, Hey man, you look skinny. You know, you're looking great. And it's just something that we value very highly as an endurance athlete. And so, um, I thought that was, was gonna earn me love and appreciation, you know, being skinny. But, um, I realized when I was in Argentina that that didn't matter at all. Like people still love me just because I am, you know, it's like weight isn't, isn't, something that most people talk about mm. and um so i was so i had to get over that and that, that took a while you know it's not like it wasn't easy it was a couple, couple years you know not not the actual like 
being bulimic, but just the mentality of, Hey, feeling like I, I don't have to worry about my weight or I don't have to, you know, be concerned about what people think of me. So, um, did that. And then I, I came to Mexico and started working with uh, youth with a mission in Mexico and building homes for the poor and realizing that, that a lot of athletes, a lot of my peers were experiencing similar situations in their life and dissatisfaction with their careers and whatnot and wanting a deeper purpose and, and realizing that I could either complain about it and say how bad sport is and how damaging it is, or try to make a difference in the world of sport and change the culture. And so I started bringing professional athletes to Mexico to go home. And, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, later on, but, um, but really uh, been, been a cool to see that uh, vision grow into what it's become today. So. Hey, uh, I want to touch on two things. First of all, the subject of male eating disorders is not one that I've ever heard from anybody but you. And so hats off to you for feeling comfortable and courageous enough to share that because like, I'm sure you're not the only one. And especially in the, in the cycling community, as you were talking about, uh, it's gotta be a problem. And, um, I just think that's really cool that you're comfortable sharing that. And then second of all, I really want to applaud you for, I mean, at the age of 20, 21, you made that decision to walk away from the sport that you've literally invested, I don't know, five times, like, so 2000 hours a year or two for 10 years, it was your full-time thing. And you said, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. This isn't my calling, even though this is my only friend group, even though the other people in my life at school bully me and like you kind of did have this this unique social situation where you had awesome friends but they were all cyclists and to walk away from that to walk away from um you know there's family pressure saying you need to continue doing this you're so close uh that's not that's not a decision that even to this day i've been brave enough to make and the the trap of elite and high level sports um and the identity crisis that you have when you walk away from it. <laughs> I, th- I think you've handled that extremely well. And now you're kind of sharing that perspective and the lessons you've learned um, with other people. And I just think that's very, very cool because even still now, like I just got offered another contract with that new uh, startup football league. And it's hard for me to say no, even though I know my calling is bigger and, and I have so many other things going in my life my identity still very much is in football. Um, and just for you to be able to make that, that call, that decision at a younger age, um, is amazing and sets an awesome example for me and other people. Uh, but um, so you talked about the YWAM San Diego, uh, or the, your, your discipleship training school that you did in Argentina. How did that shape your perspective moving forward? Um, it was really like the first time I had been in an environment where people just loved, loved me for just me, you know, it was like a wild idea, you know, but, but, um, just, and not being around people that didn't care that I was a professional athlete or or whatever, just being with people that just loved me for who I was and that loved God and, and that were dedicating their lives to, to his calling on their life. And so, um, was very transformational 
very transformational environment. And it still continues to be to this day. I mean, just having a strong community of people that just appreciate you for who you are and for who God created me to be, for who God created each and every single one of us to be and not, not having to do things in order to earn love and appreciation. Wow. That's amazing. And that, that supportive community helped give you the confidence to, to not only go to the, the youth with a mission base in Tijuana, but also start your own organization. Um, and today is giving Tuesday. And so I'm going to include a link in the description. Uh, if you guys want to give to guys organization, this is something that Sean and I are passionate about. Uh, we're on the board of, and we are heavily involved. Um, we just love your mission behind it. But whether you're listening on giving Tuesday or in the future, that link will be live and you can, you can donate. Um, but I want to, I want to hear you expand on what's your mission for your uh, organization called hope sports or global communities of hope is, and um, the results that you've seen from that. So, so hope sports is an organization that I created as a result of my experience as a professional athlete and with a desire to help other athletes and uh, not just professional athletes, but athletes from, you know, kids all the way to, to older athletes that develop purpose in life outside of their athletic careers, understanding that, that it's not necessarily the medals that they have or the championships that, that, that they've won. Um, but that it's who they are and it's, it's using sport as a way to bring transformation to the world, bring transformation to their own lives and just bring a, a separation from, from who you are on the field and how you do on the field to who you are as a human being and um, developing emotional and spiritual health in individuals. So we do that through building homes for the poor. We bring the athletes to come down to Mexico and they'll build a complete home for a family. And through that experience, they'll be able to see um, what it's really like to, to be somebody that makes a difference in the world. You know, as an, as an athlete, you, you live your whole life from a sixth grader onwards and you think that people love you and appreciate you for, for what you do, you know, your dad, your coach, your sponsors, whatever, the higher up you get, the more pressure there is, but they, they, they always validate you when you win, but rarely are you validated when you lose, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of, Oh, Hey, you left, you did your best effort. It's, Oh, you lost today. You didn't do good. And, and I think that's a shame because you can't control winning and losing. You know, I mean, you, you can't control performance, unfortunately. You know, I mean, you can do everything you can to, 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 to make the best effort, right? Like you can train in the gym eight hours a day, but if you show up at the Olympics and you're sick, well, you can't control that. You know, it's not your fault. And um, it, the, I think the more that athletes, the, the more that we're able to shift the culture of that mentality, the, the, the more health, the, the healthier that athletes will be emotionally and spiritually, and, and um, the more successful they'll be because they understand that they have a purpose that's far beyond how they perform on the field. Because, you know, at the end of the day too, they're going to, everybody's going to retire, you know, whether you're professional or whether you're college or whether you're high school and you don't make it to the next level and what, you know, who are you? Everybody's mm -hmm. going to go through an identity crisis if, if that's all they have. And um, yeah. it's very, very challenging. I mean, I, I, I read the statistic that 24,000 college students transition out of college sports every year. Wow. It's a lot, you know, and they've, these guys have dedicated their lives to it. And so, so hope sports wants to change that, you know, that you can be the best in the world and have a purpose 
And so we've got the the home building program in Mexico, which I think is a fantastic program. We've got a cycling team in, in Mexico where we develop youth and provide them opportunities. We've got 500 kids in Costa Rica. We've got our own podcast where we're telling stories of professional athletes um, that have gone from performance to purpose and, and just a lot of different initiatives that, that kind of feed into this idea. You know, it's, 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 a, it's changing of culture, which is very, very challenging, but. Yeah. And, so, and, and the business of, of changing identity and empowering uh, purpose in an in individual is not easy. And you don't only build homes, you bring in sports psychologists and mentors and teachers to speak with these uh, groups of athletes and teams that otherwise don't get that, that information and that perspective change that's so widely needed. And I just think it's, it's such an important thing you're doing because sport is idolized, not only in the United States, but, but worldwide. And if we get to a point where athletes truly know who they are, truly know what their passion is and how they can make an impact with that, um, I just think that so many things can change and so many things will be for the better. So, so hats off to you um, with that. Uh, unless there's, go ahead. Cause we're getting oh, yeah. fan questions yeah. here. So you better get rallied up and excited. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just don't think that there's, there's that many people on a large scale um, doing this type of work, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. definitely sectors, but, but it's all about performance all the time and that's what matters that's performance and winning is what you know makes people money but um but and that would it would work that model would work if athletes were machines but we're not machines you know there's a there's a spiritual side there's an emotional side there's a relational side um and there's a physical side and all of that has to be taken into account when you develop a, a high performance plan for somebody yeah. But the easiest thing is to just focus on the performance because that's the most, that's the easiest thing that, that you can control, you know? And what, what, what one of our speakers says is, um, he says, high, he says, high performance, low stress, good relationships, bad performance, high stress, bad relationships. I think I did that in reverse, but, but relation, bad relationships equals bad performance, good relationships equals good performance. And it's not something we know, normally equate to it, but think about it. You know, if somebody's got problems in the home then they're not going to be able to dedicate, you know, their full attention to their performance on the field. So, yeah. Um, and guys being humble, he hasn't shared this, but he's had such a wide array of super successful teams. Everyone from, from D division one athletic teams to, uh, Olympic United States Olympic sanctioned teams, um, to professional sports teams. And he's gotten to, to work with amazing people, make amazing difference. And, um, if you guys are interested, you could check out his website, hopesports.org. Correct. Yeah. Um, and you could sign up and learn more about it. If you have a team uh, that you think would, would fit the bill and be good for this, which, I would reckon to say every team needs something like this, but yeah, it's incredible team building. And we've, we've built 50 homes in three years and we've had a thousand professional and college athletes in three years. So nine Olympic teams and wow. athletes from almost every major sport. So, wow. The, or, the charity has also been featured on family feud. Um, yes, it has. I know, Thank I, you. I know that was kind of a tough experience, so we don't need to expand <laughs> on that too much. We did not win, uh, <laughs> but it's okay. Um, so are you ready? You ready for some fan questions? Ready. All right. This is, this is my favorite part because the questions are all over the spectrum. Um, 
So we'll start with, um, okay. We will start with Hopesicle wants to know what's the hardest part of living overseas for the purpose of missions. The deep question. I, you know, I think being away from things that you're fami- most familiar with, you know, um, even things like Starbucks or McDonald's or something, but just the oftentimes being overseas can be far more chaotic than being in the United States. And um, so not having the same, uh, you know, amenities that you would in the United States and just the, the, the added chaos can get to you at times. So that's probably the most difficult, the chaos. Um, Heather Seckler wants to know what's the hardest part about retiring from elite sports. Uh, I would definitely say, as we discussed earlier, developing an identity out, outside of sport, you know, the purpose outside of that. And, and one of the hardest things is just making the decision to retire. Um, that's very challenging, but identity, 100%. Yeah. Tesora Delia wants to know, uh, do you think you're better than Andrew at football? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It depends on the position. Uh yeah, no, I, I, would, no. I would agree with you. Uh, Ree Hubbard wants to know how and why did you choose to do cycling? Um, yeah, because I I saw Lance Armstrong and I was so inspired by Lance and and Dad was the cyclist and and so I got into you know he when he bought me a bike it was like a no brainer it was fun it was a great way to spend time with Dad and uh, you know everybody looks up to their dad and so being able to ride with with dad and to ride and to see pictures of him and it was just fun yeah so thankful for that this question's from k pecked uh what did you learn as a cyclist that has helped you in your current life endeavors well um you know i think that the easiest answer for me would just be the, the the hard work and dedication um, that, that went into that and how that transfers into the rest of my life. And yeah, you do, you do develop a lot of character qualities, good character qualities as a, as a professional athlete. And I think that is one of them, you know, putting your head down and just getting things done. Um, cause that's what it requires. And, and there's, there's definitely the bad sides too, which probably more outweigh the good, but, um, but that would be a good one. Okay. And then last one, Nadia Fonseca Hasinko wants to know, why did you think of Andrew when you met Sean? Okay. So I thought of Andrew. Why can I just give a little background for those of you who don't know? I don't know. I don't know. Guy guy was the guys, guys literally the reason that Sean and I are together. Um, And so thank you for that. I owe you, um, I guess, my life for Sean, but why did you think of me when you met Sean? Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> so before I went to the Olympics, it must've been the week before I went, well, within a month of before going to the Olympics, you mentioned that Sean Johnson was uh, uh, thinking about going to Vanderbilt and how the entire football team was so excited about that. And, you know, Sean Johnson was incredibly famous. You know, everybody knew Sean Johnson in the United States, you know, and so for her to maybe go to Vanderbilt was exciting for you guys. And it was just crazy to think about. And so then when I um, saw her, I was like, boom, me and my brother go to Vanderbilt and come to Mexico. And, uh, it you know, here we are. <laughs> it happened. 
for you guys, for those of you who want to hear Sean's side of the story, uh, she talks about it in my interview with her. It's pretty funny. I'd recommend it. But um, I want to close with a couple of different questions. First, I think as athletes, um, we're so used to having a team around us that helps us achieve our athletic goals. What are, who are you since you pivoted um, away from sports? Who would you say is your team now that has helped you accomplish what you have? Well, I've got a lot of great friends. Um, they're not with me all the time in person, but uh, you and Ben King, who's a professional cyclist, and uh, my cousin Christopher, and you know, just a, a lot of great friends who I've lived life with over the, you know, my entire life, and um, they're the guys that I turn to and that I love hanging out with, and that are always there and will shoot it straight and. Um, really important relationships in my life, you know. Um, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's completely. It's, you can't compare. I mean, having a sport team and it's, anyway, yeah. So I've got a lot of great friends, you included, who have just been incredibly pivotal. So nice, glad to be a part of the squad. Uh, this is a this is a big one. I want to talk about how your vision for what you wanted out of life compare now compares to what your vision was uh, during your cycling career before you made that, that redirect. Just kind of compare and contrast. Um, I, this might sound strange, um, but I, I, I don't measure the results by what I accomplish necessarily. I'm not the, the, the results don't drive my decisions and don't drive my life. And, and, um, beforehand it did, you know, my success on the bike was based on what I won and, you know, how much I made and all this stuff. And now that doesn't, you know, I, I, I try not to let numbers get in the way of doing what I love and I just, I'm doing what I love and I'm doing what I'm called to do here. And I absolutely love it, you know? And so the, the, the scorecard of, of what a successful uh, life for me, it looks totally different. You know, I'm not, I'm not measuring things the same way. Um, so that would be, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's no, great. Um, what, what are your yeah, goals that's, now? That's the most successful um, goals. I mean, I definitely am ambitious. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to see this vision grow, but, it's hard to put, you know, quantify it. Um, but my goal is just to continue doing what I love to, to continue, you know, doing this work and to make an impact and to, to, to not stray from that mission, you know, and, and if it's, if it's a thousand people, or if it's 10,000 people, or if it's a million people, or if we're doing a hundred thousand dollars a year, or if we're doing, you know, $500 million, it doesn't, doesn't matter because as long as I'm, along the course and doing what I feel like um, I'm set up to accomplish. And that's fine with me, you know? And I think it's, it's so easy to get caught up into the numbers and the, the, you know, you know, the story of, Oh, you got to make this much money and Oh, you're not doing good enough. But yeah. Now you got to keep doing better every single year. It's, it's, that's not necessarily reality. And I try to separate myself from that. And obviously it's hard for probably for anybody, but um the more I'm able to do that, the more I'm just content I am, you know? 
it's so crazy that even the competition is so embedded in our culture and everything we do that uh, even in the, the charitable world and the, the nonprofit world, there still is this sense of competition and, and constant, this mindset of constant growth. Um, so maybe a discussion for another day, but do you have any book recommendations that you'd like to share with the audience? I know you're an avid reader. Yeah, I love reading. Um, I love The Alchemist. It's a great book. Yep. Uh, highly recommended. Um, the Pursuit of God and Man's Search for Meaning. Those are three books that I recommend. They're really awesome books. I want to hear three takeaways that you have for the audience um, that you've learned from from your experiences, cycling, pivoting away from cycling, and what you're doing now. Finding a purpose that's greater than yourself and going out and just developing your purpose. And I think you don't just find it one day. I think you live into it by doing things with people you love and doing what you're passionate about, but, but develop a purpose um, and be far less concerned about what other people think of you um, and, and don't live in fear of what other people think of you. Um, we value their opinions, obviously, and value uh, what those closest to you say, but don't live in fear of what people think of you because it squashes us so oftentimes. And, and it did certainly to me. And uh, the last one, just do it with people you love, you know, and, and um, find a strong community of, of people that uh, that you love to be with and that love you and that appreciate you for who you are. And um, and I think it couldn't get any better than that, you know. Yeah. Guy, yeah, I just wanted to be on public record that I am extremely grateful for you and to have you in my life. You are and you were uh, – amazing older brother uh i'm not going to say you're perfect but um i i've grown to realize how much you truly care about me and your siblings and um you've you've been so vulnerable in sharing with us the things that you've learned and so i'm i'm extremely thankful for that and i'm i'm so proud of you and i'm proud to call you my brother so now that we have that um, thank you yeah i appreciate you thank taking you. the time though this is great and again today is giving tuesday um and even if you're listening to it after that please donate to the cause uh i would reckon to say that it's maybe the most important cause out there and um thanks for listening guys guy we'll talk later and thanks for the time thank you hey guys it's andrew and i hope you enjoyed this episode of redirected If you find this podcast valuable, there are a lot of ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you happen to listen from. You can share it with your friends on social media, blogs, or on your own podcast. Also, head over to andrewdes.com for more information and to request your favorite celebrity, entrepreneur, athlete, or anyone else who inspires you. And while you're at my site, be sure to sign up for my newsletter so you can get updates on other fun stuff going on. Also, you guys know I love connecting with you, so if you want to reach out to me directly on Instagram or Twitter, my handle is at Andrew D. East. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next time on Redirected. Uh-huh.